I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 105. Today in the show, Dan and I are talking summer deer projects, tree stand tweaks, and much more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today it's just me and Dan, and we're going to be talking about a whole hodgepodge of different things, all related to hunting in some way, but I figure we just kind of sit around our virtual campfire of sorts and share a little bit of what's been on our mind, you know, at this time of year. And as deer, you know, as, as deer nuts, I guess, as year-round deer nuts, I would say is, is safe to call us. Even though it's May, there's, there's plenty on our deer hunting to-do list, so figured we could talk about some of those projects, some of those things we're working on, and then dive into a few other things that have been kind of percolating in our heads. Uh, so that's kind of my thoughts. What do you think about that, Dan? Hey, I'm down for that, man. I need a good a good whitetail session. Yeah, yeah agreed. Agreed. We, we didn't get to chat last week because you were what, – what, what were you doing? It was a basket weaving conference. Is that right? Yep, basket weaving conference. It's you know, it's <laughs> aside from whitetail, whitetails, uh, and hunting in general, it is a passion of mine. Yeah, that and, knitting, uh, knitting. Yeah, I mean, just any type of, uh, you know, jobs that historically women do. Those are what I really am passionate about. <laughs> like traditional, old school, like eighteen hundreds type of basket weaving mm-hmm. and knitting uh, cross stitching those things oh my god just a huge passion i mean it goes deep it runs i think it's in my blood just like hunting right now tell me is it difficult to knit with those little needle things with only nine fingers it is very difficult um and just like hunting you know everybody has their (laughs) (laughs) anyone listening to this episode for the first time is going to shut it off so quick exactly god these guys are horrible why does why does this hunting guy knit (laughs) 
<laughs> I made my own camouflage. It was pretty cool. You know, in all seriousness, you really did used to make your own camouflage, Dan. <laughs> you made some janky looking things. <laughs> it was, I tell you what, it was, it served no purpose other than looking like Rambo First Blood. T- tell our listeners, who maybe the, the newer listeners within the last year, year and a half, only know Dan Johnson, the nine-fingered wonder, who wears <laughs> nice Sitka camo. What about the Dan Johnson of yore, who wore self-made camo? Tell them about that camo. <laughs> the the Dallas-Fort Worth of the world? Yes, tell, tell them about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, be- I, dude, back in the day, it, like, it wasn't about it wasn't it was it was not the hunting industry for me. Like I wore Walmart camo. I did my own stuff to make it 3D, like cut little triangles out of sweatshirts. That was so uh, legit. I took giant patterns of uh like camouflage that I got like scraps I that you would get from camouflage companies and I said, Hey, I want to make a poncho out of it. So I turned <laughs> I made a poncho out of it. Um I mean, most of the time, most of the times oh, I was, gosh. when I very first started hunting, I was wearing, um, like khaki pants and I took black marker and brown <laughs> marker and like make lines on them and to make it look like some kind of, I don't know, camo. Uh huh. That was way back in the day, man. Man, that, that sounds like some pretty serious DIY work right there. Mm-hmm. Did you ever take like a, a burlap bag and just cut a, a neck hole and armholes and, and bring that out in the woods with you. I feel like you were real close. Uh, I have, I have the, the, I guess you want to say fabric to make that stuff, <laughs> but I didn't, it, it wasn't a bag. It was that. So what I would do, what I did was I had my old, an old hunting sweatshirt, hooded sweatshirt. And then what I did was I took fabric glue and I dotted it. And then I put the burlap sack kind of over top of it almost like a poncho Dude, i tell you what it looked it looked like sniper military-ish it was pretty oh, cool oh man that does sound pretty cool i think you should bring that back out for like a photo shoot i'd love to see some of those now hey you know and it's what's funny is that that's still like deep at your core like you still have a part of that a part of you that wants to do that kind of thing because i oh, went yeah. on a hunting trip with you last year where you literally <laughs> wore a black plastic <laughs> trash bag <laughs> You literally did that. So, uh, by the way, those are not breathable. No, no, I doubt they are. Plastic is not. <laughs> plastic trash bags are not breathable. Oh, geez, oh, Pete. So, what? <laughs> what were you really doing last week? You were gone. Was it a conference? Was, a real? Yeah. It was a conference, right? No, it wasn't a conference. It was software training. So I was oh. out in uh, a suburb just west of Philadelphia, and. Uh, uh, I was learning new software that my company's going to implement. Gotcha. Was that yeah. fun? Yeah, it was okay. I mean, I'm you know I love learning new things, but uh, like travel for work and travel for fun is two different things. Yeah, agreed. I um I used to travel a lot by air for my old job, and so I kind of have a weird I don't know what it is I. I like I associate, even though a lot of my air travel was like for work stuff, I still have this weird association from like being a kid. That every time I go to an airport, like I get all giddy and excited because I think I'm going somewhere fun and exciting. But then, you know, after dozens and dozens of work trips, you start to get the opposite. But I'm back to being right. giddy and excited whenever I go to an airport. <laughs> right, right. So 
I, but I missed I missed the podcast last week. I was disappointed because I did have to travel. And uh, so now I'm ready. I'm like, I'm jacked. I'm ready to go. Good. Are you ready to go? I'm ready. You should be. We, we absolutely should be. And what we're kind of talking about today, I figured, was that, you know, talk about some of the different projects we're working on or thinking about right now because I know there's a lot that I need to be doing and that I have been doing over the recent couple weeks, and we haven't really had any just catch-up time of what's going on in our deer hunting worlds. So I thought today would be a good time to do that. Uh, so I don't know. Have you, have you been thinking about anything? Have you been getting out and doing anything yet? Last time we talked, I think, you know, I don't, I don't think we've talked to you since you were there turkey hunting down at your place. Have you done anything since? But actually, before Dan answers that question, let's take a very quick break for a word from our sponsors of this podcast, Sitka Gear. And today's Sitka story comes from Wade James, who last year decided to sacrifice his own hunting season and instead focus on spending the whole fall with his dad trying to help him get his first archery buck and film it all too. The season was tough, and as October dragged on, Wade began to worry. But, miraculously, right towards the end of their archery season, things came together, and a special season came to a special end. Yeah, it was definitely just an emotional experience when it all finally came together for us, just knowing that all the hard work and time that we put in was rewarded on both ends. The fact that I was able to give back to my dad, and then uh, just, just the fact that it was just a great bonding season for us to just spend time in the stand together all year round, and kind of just for me to show him how thankful I am for all the time he put in with me that I could just give it a little bit of back, a little bit of time back for him. Wade took this powerful story of a son's ultimate thank you and made a terrific short film about it called Reciprocate, which you can watch at vimeo.com slash adlivcollective. That's A-D-L-I-V collective. And if you'd like to learn more about Sitka Gear, which Wade and his dad were both wearing on these hunts, you can visit sitkagear.com. And now, back to that question for Dan. No, man, uh, not really. I took my buddy out turkey hunting once, uh, close but no cigar type of deal. And uh, since then, it's been just family. And uh, I, I tell you, as soon as – I'll keep this portion of it sto- – my my life, I feel like, is out of control right now uh, with just how busy everything is with uh, that work trip I was on. And then, uh, long story short, I was in the hospital this entire weekend with my son. So that kind of – I had plans to do some food plot prep work, um, and that didn't happen. So now that's been delayed, and uh, now my next – after this weekend, this one – this is a holiday weekend, right, coming up? Yep. 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 So the following weekend, I've already okayed it with a wife, and uh, that is going to be my trip down to my main farm to uh, do mineral and trail cameras. Nice, nice. So just so we're, we're all updated, everything's okay with the little guy right now? He's doing better? Yep. We, he was in the hospital for three days with pneumonia, and uh, he uh, got some treatments, and he got some uh, medication, and he seems to be doing better. So Good. Wow. Glad to hear he's on the mend. That that sounded pretty brutal. Yeah. So. He's a tough one. Uh, just I can tell he's a tough one from the number of times he falls and hits his head and cries <laughs> and then kind of like shakes it off and he goes back to playing. So he's resilient. Oh, man. It's not going to be too long till he's running around the woods in a burlap sack. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> or a loincloth. Right. I feel like he would be that type of kid. Yeah. He's not a fan of shirts and pants. Well... <laughs> He's off to a good start. Right. A- amen. 
so what's the plan with the, with the, uh, the trail cameras and the minerals and all that? Uh, we've talked about, you know, a couple different times in the past, over the past couple of years, but what's your game plan this year? How many putting out? Where are you putting them? What's I got five more to put out this year. So uh, I think a total of 11, I think, 10 or 11. One of them, one of my old ones I don't think is, is working very well, so that might be a close-to-home camera. But uh, I got uh, – three, four, four, potentially five properties to spread out 11 trail cameras on. And, uh, so, you know, this time of year is obviously, uh, inventory and, uh, basically check what bucks are in the area, you know, check to see how the does did as far as uh, fawn recruitment is concerned. And then, um, you know, watch that velvet rut, you know, watch them grow. And, and, you know, that's, that's just, I don't know about you, but it's one of my favorite things about the life cycle of the whitetail is absolutely watching them grow in the summertime, trying to pinpoint who that buck is. Is he, you know, is he a return customer? Is he, um, you know, is he brand new to the area? You know, play that game, give them names and, and all that stuff. So right now is getting that, getting that mineral out. And, you know, I use mineral for basically one reason. And, uh, that is to do, uh, get them to come in front of my trail cameras for some inventory. But, uh, I don't know if it does do, if it does provide a health benefit, then I'm okay with that as well. Yeah. It's funny. There's, there's a lot of like debate about the actual health benefits of minerals and basically everything I've read and a lot of the research states that there's an assumed value, like it makes sense that there should be some benefits to these minerals, um, you know, whether it be just overall nutrition or antler growth, um, you know, because deer um, require a lot of the minerals that, you know, we provide them, calcium, phosphorus, et cetera, et cetera. And especially in their, with antler growth, like that's primarily con, um, composed of, of various minerals like that. So this, this type of uh, supplementation should help, but at least the latest I saw, and that I've read, there haven't been any actual research studies that can really prove it. Um, so it's kind of one of those things where I'm kind of like you, Dan. I, I put it out where legal, you know, mostly just to get trail camera pictures and stuff like that. And if it does happen to help, great. But that's not like that's not really I'm really banking on. Right. I think it was one of our one of our guests recently, within the past five episodes, I think it was talked about how the only way you can really tell if mineral is doing any good is have a set of identical twin bucks that have, you know, basically the same rat characteristics and have the same diet and same stress levels and expose them only, only one of them to the mineral to see how it does. And that's, uh, almost, uh, impossible to do. Right. right. Yeah. That's a pretty tough, pretty tough test control to pull off. Yeah, but either way, if you can get them out there, it's certainly not a bad thing if it's legal in your state. And uh, what do, what are you putting out this year for your cameras? What type of stuff? I know you've tried some different things in the past. As far as trail cameras are concerned, mineral, mineral oh, or tracking yeah. or what? I mean, mineral. Man, I've used anything. Like right now, I have a couple trophy rocks out. Um, I have some analogic stuff out. I have. Um, in the past, I've used Lucky Buck and a couple other minerals. Um, there is a, a mineral company that I, I wish was doing a better job. I know the owner, really good guy, but for some reason, I feel that uh, it's called Whitetail XTC, 
I don't know if you've ever used it in the past, but that stuff for some reason, every trail camera I put it in front of brings the deer in. And I mean a lot of, it almost seems like it's, it's working to attract deer to that location way better than any product I've used in the past. Huh. And, and lucky buck has always done a real good job, but this whitetail XT, XTC stuff, uh, is really like, I've used that, uh, I think for three or four years now and it does a real good job. Hmm. So speaking of lucky buck, did you know that lucky buck is based down here by me in Southern Michigan? Really? Yeah. And oh, okay. In another interesting fact, you know my buddy Dustin. You met yeah. Dustin a couple times. He was actually used. Pictures of him were used in a bunch of Lucky Bucks ads and even on their bucket of stuff. Oh yeah, that's right. I remember uh, him telling me that at uh, what ATA show two years ago. Yeah, because he shot. Uh, I think it was a two hundred and four inch buck in Michigan. Yeah. Two hundred and four and an eighth or three eighths or something like that net. Um, so he he had a little bit of celebrity status there for a while was on that uh those ad materials that was kind of cool heck but, yeah uh what would you do if you killed 200 buck <laughs> i don't know what i do well after i changed my underwear um i'd probably i don't know i would just sit and stare at it for hours probably i mean when i go to some of the some of the trade shows and or like the iowa deer classic and you walk up and down the big buck row or, you know, the big buck area where all the mounts are at and you just stare. I mean, there's days my, I have my buck down the basement here. I just sit and I stare at it. I lay on the couch and I stare at it and I just play the hunt in my head over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I would probably do that uh, tenfold with a, yeah. a 200 incher. It's one of my favorite things about having shoulder mounts is just being able to kick back and look at them and, and just relive that moment. Right. That's awesome. what, what have you used in the past for uh, mineral? I've done a lot of different things. I'd say the most consistent thing that I basically always use, if I'm putting on a mineral or any kind of attractant, I almost always have a trophy rock out there. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, lots of times I'll try other things along with it. Um, so I've used like a number of different attractants like uh, BB Squared from Big and J. Um, yeah. And they have, they've got a mineral product too. I cannot, I think it's called... Uh, meltdown or something like that i think it is um okay. so I've, I've used that in the past i've used their uh, their attractant which is like a grain based attractant with some other things in it um oh gosh what else have i tried you know i've tried some of like the evolved uh i think it's like Joe, black magic or deer cane or deer cocaine or stuff like yeah. that I, i've i've kind of Kind of out of convenience, whenever I'm like down in some different state where I'm going to use this, and I don't have anything with me, I'll just grab whatever is at Walmart or wherever. Um, but but almost always I've got a trophy rack out there. Like in Ohio, we um we just put out our trail cameras down there. Oh, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, and we got some trophy rocks, and we got some corn. I think or no, this year we didn't have corn. Usually I put out corn and then. A trophy rock. The corn kind of gets them into the area, and then they continue coming to the mineral after that. Um, but we had I don't think that, I don't think we were able to find corn, so we just got some like I don't know. Oh gosh, some apple mix. I can't tell you. There's so many. It's kind of ridiculous how many different things there are out right. there for this you, kind of thing. Do you remember back in the day? I don't know if it was something called deer cane, but it was an actual mineral that had addictive properties to it, or at least they said it was. They, well. I actually think it did, 
and they had to stop the manufacturing it because it was it really wasn't helping the deer's health it was just getting basically it was like cocaine and it literally was making them skinnier because they were forgetting to eat they were just going back to these mineral stations over and over and over again for real for real dead serious wow I'll have to I'll have to do some more research on that, but I'm pretty sure there was I don't know if it was deer cane or I think uh, that I think that's still around deer right. cane or deer cocaine or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have all the information for on that right now, but I'm pretty sure there was a manufacturer out there that had to uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but a manufacturer that had to change their recipe because there was addictive properties in wow. the actual uh, I guess recipe. That's crazy. <laughs> just imagine, well, just imagine that bait pile. You oh know, my gosh! You know, just you get your deer hooked on drugs, and then you uh, put put it out there, and they they come right to you, no matter what. Not because they're afraid, but because they're jonesing. That's <laughs> talk. I think we'd have some ethical issues if it <laughs> yeah. ever came to that. I think there'd be some serious questions. Oh man! But yeah. Uh, Lots of interesting things you can choose from from a mineral standpoint. That's for sure. There's no shortage right. of attractants and stuff like that. And, and and I think I think both of us are kind of like this. Neither one of us are, are really too big on actually using that kind of stuff for hunting. I, I don't think right. you really do much, do you? Well, you can't in Iowa. You can't oh, have right. bait piles or mineral stations within. So all of my mineral stations are kind of planned out in an area that it you know is. I don't want to say it's not in the area of where I'm hunting, but it can't be in a direct line of like a major trail or within a certain distance of, uh, um, cause in Iowa, it's, uh, a judgment call on the DNR officer. If he yeah. wants to, wants to bust you where in Nebraska, I think it's anything within 200 yards is illegal, but anything outside of that is perfectly legal. So in Iowa, it's a judgment call. And I think I told you the story before about, uh, um, the guy I was hunting and there was a cattle mineral lick in the middle of this field, just a salt block that the cows would go to. And, uh, the guy tried because he knew there was a big deer in there and I was hunting it and he wanted to hunt it. He, he called the DNR officer on me to tell me, uh, Hey, this guy, he's hunting over a bait pile or something like that. So the DNR officer came out. I had to show, this was years ago and I had to show him my tree stand and then he followed the, uh, trail to this this cattle pasture and uh sure enough like 75 yards into this cattle pasture and this was a block pretty pretty typical in any you know cattle operation there's salt blocks out there and uh, he's like yeah uh you're it's probably going to be best if you just move your trees and he was pretty he was real cool with me you know it's like in Iowa and in some of these farms if you especially if you're hunting an active farm there's mineral in the ground whether it's horses or cattle or pigs or whatever you're raising there's there's something out there for a supplemental feed for for those for livestock that you know deer use as well yeah, it seems way too subjective in Iowa because right. a similar situation to that came up with uh, the Joe the Joe Franz buck. Did you hear about that? Oh yeah, yep. yeah. So so for those not familiar, right? This guy killed this huge buck on his property that was I think the biggest buck ever filmed, ever killed on film at the time. This was maybe three years ago, and you know so he had it all documented, and he was you know really meticulous because he knew this was going to be like a world class buck. 
killed the buck. It was all great and dandy. And then some jealous neighbor or something like that reported that this guy had, you know, mineral sites or something on his farm illegally. And it was that kind of situation where he had, I think, some mineral out on a different part of the farm. But, you know, it was not, you know, it hadn't been either properly covered or I don't remember the exact details. So don't quote me on this. This is just, you know, what I remember hearsay. Um, But there was this whole big thing about whether or not, you know, what he was doing was within the law or outside of the law. And he, you know, went into it thinking he was completely fine. And long story short, after the year or two, after kind of getting dragged through the mud, he was exonerated and, you know, got out of it because, you know, they found that he wasn't doing this on purpose. And then whatever it was, if it was the distance between where he was hunting to where those those uh, mineral sites were or, you know, if they were covered up, I think you have to cover mineral sites if they're close or I don't know. I've talked to some of my buddies in Iowa and it sounds like it's yeah. just kind of a messy, subjective way of going about it. And I think, you know, it probably it, makes sense that they should try to clarify some of that stuff because – well-meaning people could be, you know, breaking the law when they're just simply trying to do the best they can given the very murky laws. Right. And that's what the DNR officer told me on a second occasion where I went, I got a new property and there was mineral sites, uh, some from cattle and some from actual other hunters and that the hunters don't hunt there anymore. And, uh, I said, okay, I want to hunt in this area, but there's a mineral site. What do I have to do? And he's like, well, you got to put rock in it. And you have to cover it up with dirt. So like put some gravel in it and cover it up with dirt. And I'm like, okay. And then he's like, well, and then if we see it, you know, we'll test the soil to see if there's a high level of sodium or other minerals in it. And if we, if we come back and that's positive, I'm just like, Hey, how about a law that says no mineral sites within 200 yards of your tree stands? Wouldn't yeah, that, that just... wouldn't that just be, or, or if there's a mineral that, station that is one year old or something like that you have to do this to it and then it's considered clear you know it's it's not a mineral site anymore i just i just it just feels i just feel it should be much simpler sir sir seems like it would be easier not only from a hunter standpoint but also from a conservation officer standpoint to try to enforce a lot it would probably make their jobs a lot easier if there was some clarity around that too right right that's frustrating so i just kind of a you know, I, I put my mineral stations out and then I just avoid them, uh, you know, avoid setting up near them, uh, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to hunting season. So food plot or not food plots, you got your mineral stuff out cameras. You said you got 11 cameras you're putting out. I have to do a little camera work. Like I said, I already put my cameras down in Ohio, but I'm leaving for my Western trip here in just a few right. days. For right. two months. So, and you're, you're stopping to get me, right, on your way out there? Right, right. It was going to okay. be you, me, and my wife, Kylie. Okay. And the three of us were going to stay in a little cottage together. Yep. And that's the plan, yep. right? <laughs> right. That's. I mean, I'll clean up after myself. You won't know I'm there. I'll bring my tent, and I'll just stay in the mountain. I'll bring my tent and my frog togs. And, <laughs> <laughs> and your plastic bags. The plastic bags, and I'll, I'm set. And you will be good to go. Oh man. Well, yes, we, so we, we have to, I'm trying to get a bunch of work done before I take off for that because that's like a two month period where I can't do any of my typical deer work. So I've been scurrying around doing some stuff here in Michigan and, uh, probably tomorrow or the next day I've got to go out and put a couple cameras out. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot I can do here since I'm gone for two months, but 
I'll have them out there on some typical feeding areas, it's beans, on one of my main farms. So I know where some deer are typically going to be coming out into the beans. So hopefully I'll get some, a few summer picks in June, July, so when I come back there'll be something to look at. Um, you know, I did that last year and was kind of, you know, I didn't have super high hopes of what I might get since I was setting cameras in May and coming back two months later. But uh, I had pictures of the buck I ended up killing last year, so that worked out. Um, so I got to do that. But the big thing I'm working on is food plot stuff. Right. Um, so I've got, well, let's see here, two food plots on my main Michigan property that I've been just trying to get prepped as best as possible for me to work on them when I come back in August. So I had to spray them. So like last week I was out there spraying and we've just been having such a wet spring that it's been hard to even get into the fields with my four-wheeler to get out there at all. Um, so that's been a challenge, but I finally was able to get out there and spray everything. So everything's killed down. But now what I got to do is on my front food plot, it is, and I can't remember if we talked about this or not, but have we ever talked about this food plot up in front that is where I killed my buck last year? Have we ever talked about what I did there? In, in Michigan? Yeah. Yeah. So that little, uh, that little triangle. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like a pie and it's separated into three small pieces, um, of different stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, a. uh, a split sort of between brassicas and oats every year. I kind of flip flop them. Well, right now what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to plant a, f- a screen around the outside of it. You know, two years ago when I first made this new section, the the issue with it is that it's out in the wide open, right adjacent to these crop fields. So the first year I planted a mixture of Egyptian wheat and sorghum, which are like really tall um, plants, kind of like corn sort of, and they can grow up like 10, 12 feet tall. So I plant a screen of that around the outside of that, like outer crust of the pie sort of. Um, but then last year I wasn't able to plant it because the, the growth from the year before was so thick in that area. I couldn't disc it up with my little ATV disc, but luckily it was a corn year. So there was corn surrounding most of the plot. So I kind of got away with it, but this year it's going to be beans again. So I want to make sure I've got that cover around the outside. So I'm trying to get that in. So tomorrow I'm going to go out there and just disc away with my little ATV disc for probably four hours trying to get this thing tilled up. And then I'm going to try to get all that planted so that it'll be in the ground for this rain that we have hitting on Thursday, I think. And then it'll have two months to grow before I come back. And then hopefully that's grown up well by the time I get back in August. And then I'll be able to start working on actually planting the food. And then um, it'll be good to go. But that really, that front food plot has been a really good addition to this property. Like I can't remember if I've explained how this section of the farm works, but there had been like almost no deer activity towards this far Western side of the property at all in the past. Cause it was kind of wide open. There was a little section of timber that came out, but overall it was, it was pretty wide open. And then on the neighbors, he had some good thick cover, but of course I couldn't hunt the neighbors. Um, so I was hunting in the far Eastern side of this farm, never really getting to use the West side. And then once I add this, f- this food plot, and the added cover on the outside to make those deer feel comfortable moving out there. Then finally, all of a sudden, lots of daytime activity, lots of mature buck activity. Now it's like one of the best spots in the whole farm. Um, so that's been kind of cool. You know, great example of that was last year, that opening day hunt. So I'm just, I'm excited because it's a fun spot to hunt. You see a ton of deer. And my early season stand there where I killed that buck from last year is one of those stands you can't hunt a lot because you're going to spook deer coming out of it. 
almost inevitably. Luckily, I can, you know, if someone, if I've got a friend or my wife is, is willing, it's not too far from my house, so she can actually drive a four-wheeler, and she can drive that four-wheeler all the way to that food plot and spook deer away. Um, so that's one way to get out of there without spooking deer, but otherwise, it's it's right there on the food. So it's kind of one of those hunts that I only go in there if I really think I'm going to kill something and just do it a couple times. But if you hunt this tree... You've got this food plot surrounding you, but then you can see in this big, thick, nasty bedding area that's all, I don't even know what kind of shrubs or multiflora rows or brush. I don't know what. It's low. It's not big trees. It's some kind of like early successional growth that's just thick and nasty and all sorts of tall grasses and stuff. And the deer love it, but you just can't see anything in there unless you're way up high, right sort of on the edge. And that's kind of where I'm at. So I can look over this whole bedding area and see deer hundreds of yards away that think they're completely, you know, invisible in this thick stuff but i can kind of watch them from above so it's it's a cool place i'm uh, i'm getting kind of excited just talking about it so yeah um <sighs> it gets me excited <laughs> i have uh yeah so i am in the process you know i'm i got my food plot coming up too right so mm-hmm. um i have to remove a fence and spray this entire area and um, I think this area is bigger than what I initially thought. So Mike, I'm going to ask you a question now. And aside from brassicas for, you know, like after that first frost and then, um, and then we talked about oats. Yep. Is there anything else that you might recommend for me as far as, uh, you know, a seed is concerned that they might come to somewhere around that mid to late October period. Well, I think the big thing comes down to how you're going to try to get the plot in the ground. So, I mean, you know, like we talked about with Craig a couple of weeks ago, if you're not going to have any equipment to disc up the ground at all, right. Then you're going to have to use a really small seed like a brassica or a clover. Probably they have small seeds too. Right. Um, the, the tricky thing with clovers, at least that, at least that I've, um, experienced is that they're a little hard to establish that first year. Um, at least perennial clovers. Like if you plant something in the summer or late summer, typically you're going to plant either early spring or late summer. You, most people want to avoid planting during the middle of summer cause that's usually really hot and dry. You want to plant on either end of it where there's more moisture. Yep. Um, so with perennial clovers, Again, this is just what I've seen. It's kind of tough to get a good stand of it if you plant in August or late that year. You'll get a little coming in, but it's just never really thick. Or maybe I'm just doing it wrong, but I haven't had great success that first year. It's the next spring when it typically tends to really pop and get going good. So that's why I've always liked stuff like oats or brassicas, which which are annuals, and I really seem to get really good, really good early growth. So the issue with oats, though, oats and a lot of other grains, is that they're big seeds. And you need yeah. to get them under the dirt. So yeah. with a brassica seed or clover seed, you really just need that seed just pressed into the ground, you know, just on top of the soil and like having some type of soil to seed contact. Yep. But with an oat seed or something like that, you actually have to have it like a half inch or more under the dirt. So if yeah. you if you can't get any kind of way to cultivate that soil, plow it up, disc it up, rototill if there's nothing like that, then you're going to be probably stuck with something like a brassica or some of the clovers. If you find an annual clover, I think that would come in stronger. Okay. Um, and that'll definitely be something that's attractive in September, October. I mean, all through October, even November, they'll be hitting clovers. It's yeah. not till after you get some really hard, nasty frosts that that will start to kind of go down in attraction. Um, 
but it's it's hard to go wrong with that. See, my buddy's got a Kubota tractor now. Uh, he bought it and it's got he uses it to mow his property. So, but it has a three point hitch on the back with a power takeoff. So now I looked and I can rent a tiller that can hook up to that. Nice. So now that's opened up uh, some new doors for me. Oh, dude, yeah, that'll be that'll be really nice then. Especially so if this I, is a little bigger than you thought. Yeah, so I have the ability now to rent that, and it's going to cost me like a hundred bucks for a day, two hundred bucks maybe for a day, and uh, I can I in a day I, a day or two I can till up a really good area with that, especially if I prepare for it and, and kill the grass ahead of it. Um, I think, you know, and now with with that being said, I think I can expand into a little bit and not have to wait for a f- first frost to uh, hunt that food plot. Nice. Yeah, that'll be a really good deal. Yeah, and I think and if, if, if that's the case, then you definitely have more options. Then I think, you know, some type of grain like oats is a great option. And, you know, with the thing with oats is that they are probably the most um, attractive of the grains, um, but some say they're the least cold hardy. But I haven't experienced that so much. Like the oats I've used, the deer love, and they seem to feed on them definitely more before the frost. But I still get my oats picked on and eaten even into late November, December sometimes. So, you know, that that's a combo I just really like. If there's not some really good reason, like, issues with their soil or something that oats and brassicas won't work maybe some clover thrown in um that's the way i always like to go it's just yeah you're gonna get good attraction throughout the whole season um at least in this part of the country that you and me are in and if you have a way to get that stuff in the ground you know you're just gonna want to disc it all up and then you want to then pack it all down again because you want that ground to be um relatively packed and not super super loamy broadcast your seed and then if you're doing oats or a grain like that then you got to kind of disc it back in the soil a little bit if you're doing brassicas or clover you just need to like almost run it over with your atv tires or if you know there's or your tractor tires or whatever just to press it in right and that that's all you gotta do so the next question i have for you is shade this is it's an old garden but there it, it is in shade quite a bit of the day not all day like when the sun is high in the sky, probably from that, uh, I'd say somewhere about 10, 30, 11 o'clock till two, it's going to be in the, in the, in the sun. But then after that, uh, it's pretty much shade all day with, uh, you know, breaking sunlight coming in and out of it. Yeah. I don't think any of those things would have issues with that amount of sunlight. Yeah. Although I, I, I'm, I'm saying that as an assumption, not based on like, expertise on that particular question i've planted all those things that I just mentioned in situations of partial shade partial sun and they've all done fine so based on that i'd say you're probably okay perfect so yeah man you just gotta figure out you know probably at this point now that's almost june well, are you thinking about planting in august then or that yeah, it's, it, yeah it's gonna be august uh whatever whatever i do that that'll give me time to kill the grass take the fence out uh, trim back some overhanging branches, um, and then uh, plant my seed. And then uh, on this fence is part of the fence that the gate was hanging on was two giant um, wooden posts. Okay, so I think I'm going to turn that into a vertical rub. So I'm going to walk into the timber, find an old rub, and then cut cut it down. Do you mean a hang- ho- do you mean a horizontal rub? 
Yeah, ex- yeah. Excuse, <laughs> excuse me. A horizontal rub, <laughs> based on that. Have we ever talked about that? Uh, I, don't, I don't think we have. No, not really. So, do you want to talk about where this idea came from? I'm assuming did it, did this idea come from Ted Miller? For yeah, you? there's a guy. His name's Ted Miller, and uh, he he's he's a whitetail whisperer like some of the other guys that we know, and he <laughs> he uh, he. I don't know if he necessarily he just loves to document deer and get in their bedroom and I don't even know if he if it's all about the kill for him as much as it is you know just observing this. So he's come up with this idea and I don't know if it if it was him but he's the first person that I've ever seen use it where he takes uh some kind of wood like a cedar tree and uh he marks it up with a knife or a saw or something like that and hangs it vertically in between two other posts or two other trees. Yeah. Horizontally. Yeah. <laughs> horizontally. And, uh, and the deer and he's got some footage, the deer come right to it and they use it as a scent post and he sets his tree stand up next to it. And he has some crazy footage of, of that. So, yeah, it is. It does sound like kind of bizarre. Like you don't see horizontal rubs in the wild, but, they use this thing like you, there's so much video that shows it. It's pretty crazy, and like you said, it's for for whatever reason they just seem really drawn to it. And he's got some sweet footage, trail camera footage, actual hunt footage. So have you have you ever actually tried it yourself before, or is this going to be the first time? This will be the first. I've I've tried something similar, but it was real fast, not planned out. I cut down a. When I was setting up a, a tree stand in July this last year, I uh, I cut down an old old rub and just set it basically between the Y of two young trees, and uh, I don't know if anything touched it or not. Gotcha. So are you gonna put a camera on this one? Oh yeah, it, that's gonna be right in the middle of the food plot. Nice. I'm interested to see uh, how that goes for you. That'll be yeah. Good. Yeah, me too. It's it's going to be different if and if it doesn't work, heck, it doesn't work. But the Drury's also do something with I don't know some company sponsors them. It's like a fake tree or something like that that they put right in the middle of uh, some of their food plots, and the deer go right to it. So yeah. the same kind of principle. Yep, yep. They I know they uh, they actually helped create that. It's called the tree koi, is what uh, they're calling. That's like a fake tree. But I mean, it came from an idea that a lot of people have used in the past where. You know, similar to what you're talking about, making a fake rub, that idea that they're using is making a fake scraping tree, scrape branch. So, you you know, I've done this in the past. You cut down a tree and it has a branch or two about at the height that a typical scrape branch, a licking branch would be on a scrape. Put that in your food plot or your field or whatever. Open up a scrape underneath it, you know, kick out some dirt underneath the licking branch, you know, crack a couple of the branches, hang down a couple of branches and then, you know, bury that tree in the ground. So it's stable. And then, yeah, I mean, I've seen it happen many times. Deer will be, you know, as you know, as we've all seen, if there's a scrape in the area, bucks are typically going to want to pass by and check it out, give it a sniff, maybe mark it themselves. So when that's out in the open, that's going to be one of the first things that deer are typically attracted to. Um, and so that is a really good way to kind of entice deer to move to a certain location if you're hunting an open area so i'm actually starting to try to do that now on like all my food plots or if i'm even hunting an open field during the hunting season and you know it's for whatever reason i want to be there but i'm just not sure i'm gonna get enough deer close 
this is a great way to kind of influence them to come a little bit closer or to give you that stopped broadside shot or different stuff like that. So I put one in one of my food plots last year, and unfortunately, um, when I went in there to hunt it the first time, it had been knocked over. Um, so I didn't do a good enough job of, of getting it in the ground, but I'm going to do it again this year across a couple spots. Um, man, I think it'll be pretty cool. It's a, it's a, it's a solid concept. So, right. Right. And I have, and in this same area, the deer in this, they, they, they don't walk through this little garden area. They walk on the, would be the North side of it just in the timber. So anything to help, you know, that food plot, once it's done, will help change that. But anything to help pull them out just a little bit. And what that's going to do is, I think uh, I talked a little bit about this particular property and how the wind shifts so bad. Right, but right. the further up I get from that creek bottom, the less the wind shifts. So if I can pull the deer out, not only with a food plot and uh, maybe that uh, horizontal rub, then I can I can play the wind just a little bit better. Yeah. This is one of my favorite things about like having a property where you can do some habitat work. Yeah. Is just like the chess match of it. I mean, that's what I love about hunting in general, right? Is trying to figure out, you know, the right place to be, understanding the deer and making the right move and, you know, making all these slight adjustments and with habitat improvements, it's sort of a slight alteration of that where you can now make moves that might influence where the deer go. And I know some people claim they don't like that some people prefer to just hunt what the deer are naturally doing and they look down on people that would use food plots or something but for me you know and there's a different line for everyone I guess you know right some people you know feel the same way about bait I don't necessarily like using bait um but I'm okay using a food plot so maybe I'm just like them I don't know but um there's something pretty interesting and fascinating about being able to make an improvement which is a a net positive for wildlife in general, but then also see how that influences deer movement. Um, it's, it's super fun when you actually do something, hoping that deer will you know behave in X way and then be out there hunting and watch them do that because of the thing you put in there, or the change you made. Um, that's, that's pretty cool. So I think you're going to get a kick out of trying that and seeing how it might change that property. Um, you know, like the food plot, I was talking about how I kind of completely changed how this one Michigan property hunts because of that project. That was kind of exactly what I was hoping would happen, and I, and I got fortunate that they they uh, reacted in, in the way I was hoping they would. But it's fun to experiment with, that's for sure. I could fail horribly too, so there's always that. There's definitely that. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you doing any tree stand stuff this summer? Are you making any moves, oh, or do you feel well set? I, you know, obviously. I'm going to go, I'm going to put stands in my historically good, uh, rut cruising spots, uh, next to the bedding areas. I have one, two, three stand locations that I need to alter. And what I mean by that is move to a different tree in that same area, ba you know, basically micromanage that tree stand location, um, and, uh, get to where the wind is just not right but the wind is just right um and uh also let's see one two two stand locations where i'm i'm trying to play with different access routes and one is god i i, I it kind of clicked this last year where i'm driving all the way back to the farm and i'm parking in where this horse pasture is and i hunted on a south wind well even though the 
I'm in my truck. I think I'm spooking some deer coming in from the east, and I am going to now try to come in from the west. The first thing I have to do is to see what the rules are for waterways and if they are, in fact, public domain. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to park on road and walk a, a creek all the way to the backside of this property, which is about the same walk that I would be taking if I parked from my truck. Um, but I'm just trying to figure out how, what, first I got to find out what that rule is. And then basically if the water's ever high, I'm screwed getting in. I'd have to go in through the regular way, but I have a feeling that the way I'm, the way this property sits and you've, you've shed hunted. I'm not sure if you shed hunted. Yeah, you did. You shed hunted the way back portion of it with me that one day where we went on that really long giant walk. And I think, uh, your buddy was there too, Corey, that uh, year. Man, there's been a couple of those. <laughs> yeah. Where, but any, was but it anyway, where I found that shed back in that pasture in the back? Uh, I think on our so. last day I found a nice yeah. shed laying out in the grass. Oh no, that's a, di- a different property. But anyway, it goes down to a Creek and then it rises up. There's some, there's some egg ground down there, but it, it floods a lot. So it's not, always going to be there there's some years where it's just like weeds but then it comes up to a in the the timber and the timber's on on a ridge and then it goes up to the horse pasture where it gets flat and then past the horse pasture where i drive is egg field so i feel these deer crossing the the horse pasture to get to these egg fields so what i'm doing when i drive through there is i'm either spooking the deer coming back to bed and they're going a different route to the bedding area or picking an entire bedding area all new bedding area altogether or there i'm just you know i'm just blowing the entire area out right so I am going to try to find a couple new access routes for a couple stand locations that are on the way back part of the farm. And uh, the guy has told me, no, I can't park on his property or walk through his property. But I think if my memory serves me right, I can walk the creek. Any, anywhere below the high water mark is considered public. So I can walk that creek bed, find some hip waders or some, some bigger boots and uh, walk that to the backside of the farm, walk up a little embankment, and then get to my tree stand that way. But uh, it's just it's going to be another trial and error type situation. Mm-hmm. I think what you know, I think what you just described there is such an important thing for all of us to probably do every year, right? Is to look at all of our locations and then think how can we tweak it a little bit? You know, can we improve our access, or do we need to figure out a better way to get out? Or, you know, can we improve the cover in the tree a little bit? Or should I move over 10 yards to this tree? Um, it's pretty easy every year to get your usual spots, you know, and then every year hang your stands there and just stick with that because it's easy. And I'm guilty of that sometimes too. But this is the time of year where I think it definitely makes sense to go in there and rethink some stuff and think, you know, if I could make this a little bit better, how could I do that? And then go ahead and do it because all those little things add up, you know? So. To your point, access is a huge one. I, I read an article recently from Bill Winky where he was talking about how a lot of hunters, you know, us included, many times think about choosing a stand location backwards, at least backwards of what he would recommend. You know, most of us go into a property and we look for sign or we look for a funnel or whatever. When we find that great sign or that great spot, then we say, okay, where's a good tree near this sign? And then we find that tree. And then once we find our tree near the sign, then we're like, okay, now where do I walk to get out of here? 
he was saying the smartest thing to do should be go about the other way entirely. Think about where are my best access routes and exit routes in and out of this farm. So let's say hypothetically in your case, okay, there's this creek that runs through the center of the farm. And then take that creek all the way along until you find a suitable tree and suitable spot alongside that access route. And that that's the most important thing, being able to get in and out without spooking deer. If you can get in and out without spooking deer, you'll probably have more success versus you know while hunting maybe B plus sign versus hunting A plus sign, but spooking all the deer coming in or coming out. Right. Um, so that's an interesting thing he said. I've been trying to kind of think about that a little bit more is just if you start prioritizing entry and exit over other things, it might end up having a kind of a, a spillover effect into everything else. Right. And especially early and late season when the deer are on their bed to feed patterns, yeah, yeah. that the access is so important. I mean, I can't, it's hard to put into words how important it is. You know, or the rut's different. I mean, you can walk into, yeah. you, you really, I mean, expect, except if you're hunting a bedding area, but if you're like in a pinch point, you can have a wrong wind and uh, walking in as far as access is concerned and then still make it to the stand and have successful hunts because it's a cruising area. But early season, if your access is, or if your um, access is wrong and your wind is blowing into basically a, a deer waiting for you to ruin it, then it it's screwed. Not only for that particular hunt, but depending on what the pressure is for future hunts. Right. There's a domino effect. Yep. Yeah. That that's a that's a, such a huge thing, and and I've been trying to tweak that a little bit, just adjusting. You know. Either you know, either be just thinking about different ways to get in and out, or actually manufacturing better ways to get in and out. You know, like clearing new trails, or you know, if you have the ability, like for example, if you have to cross a wide open field to get in or to get out, and deer always see you. Um, you know, one thing that I've done a little bit where I'm allowed to is plant. You know, like I talked about that food plot screen, that Egyptian wheat and sorghum. If you have permission to do this in an area, um, plant some of that to act as a screen to exit or to get in. So use that as a visual blocker. If you know that there's a section you have to walk through that deer sometimes see you, you know, plan ahead in, you know, May or June, plant a wall of that, that, you know, simple things like that could be really beneficial. You know, it takes a little extra work, but if it means you can get in and out of a tree stand without spooking deer, um, man, you can be in a great situation. I mean, finding those spots that offer bulletproof access and entry and exit. I mean, that's, that is a really, really great thing. If you can find spots like that, you can get away with a lot more hunts than usual. So when it comes to the pressure that we always talk about, you can get away with putting a little bit more pressure on deer if you can eliminate the entry and exit pressure. So That's right. Big thing to do this time of year. Another thing I'm doing, um, I just posted an article about it, was evaluating the cover in some of the trees that I've got tree stands in. So I try to go in this time of year and start, you know, okay, looking at spots. Maybe this is the tree I really want to be in, but there's not as much cover as I like. I'll try to go in there and attach branches to the tree, like with zip ties or rope or something like that to add cover so that I can blend into that tree a little bit better. If there's not naturally there, I like to kind of manufacture that. So that's something that I'm starting, that I've been doing recently here um, on some of my Michigan spots. And a couple weeks ago was checking out my Ohio tree stands to see if there's anywhere I need to add stuff. That's a really easy way to be able to just make that stand a little better. I think any opportunity you have to make things a little bit better at this time of the year could help you a ton come the fall because if you just so happen to be hunting that tree 
and in past years, maybe deer might have seen you. If this year you took the extra 15 minutes to hang a bunch of branches all around it and now you blend in better or your movement isn't as obvious, you know, that makes the difference between an empty, you know, an empty truck bed or a full one. I tell you, let me tell you something about zip ties. And you wrote that article about, you know, adding some cover into a tree stand location uh, by zip tying trees to, you know, up there by the tree. The other thing you can do, and this is a free tip from yours truly, is have we, have we been paying for the other tips? No, not really. <laughs> uh, but but <laughs> continue. Uh, but if there's a fence, right? And you're in there, these deer may be crossing a fence in a particular area, and you don't want them to cross there. Take that zip tie, zip tie that uh, um, top fence that line of bob wire or whatever it is, that wire, and zip tie it down to the next one. And that creates a little bit lower of an area to where they could cross. And I did this on an old piece of property where they were crossing on one fence quarter. So what I did was I fixed the bob wire in that one area, and then I went up and I took two zip ties and I zip tied the top to the middle section of the bob wire and they all started crossing there. So what I did was I I just altered their pattern or their movement to closer which which is more beneficial for me. The wind wasn't swirling down there. Uh the wind was blowing off the top of this ridge down to um this valley and uh although no none of my target bucks were there when I was there. I have uh, trail camera pictures of the my target bucks using that fence crossing. Just, you know, I never connected on them. So cool. That's definitely a good idea. I mean, deer is, when possible, assuming that they feel safe, will take the easiest way possible, right? right? And so in that case, you made it easier for them to cross. It's 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 a great example of those small tweaks you can make that can alter movement. Another thing you can do is... You know, if you've got a deer, typically, if they're typically traveling a trail that's maybe 40 yards from your tree stand, and for whatever reason, you're, that's the right tree stand, let's say, maybe it's right next to a creek and you can access it really well, but most of the deer travels to a little bit too far away. I know I've actually done this some, and I know a lot of guys that will fall trees to block a trail and then kind of angle fallen trees to make deer move 15 yards closer and kind of go around that obstacle by your tree stand and then continue on their way. So there's different ways you can kind of tweak the environment to get deer to move just a little bit closer or, you know, to cross right here or to come visit a horizontal rub or a scrape tree or something like that and position themselves for a shot. I think that's really one of those next level kind of things. Like, you know, when we're just learning new property, we're just trying to figure out, okay, where are the deer? And then you're figuring out, okay, how can I get in and out without spooking the deer? And then I think that next level is, okay, how can I, I've got this great spot that I can get in and out of. Now that next level is like, how can I just enhance this spot a little bit better, whether it be any of these things we just talked about, to just make it that much more enticing or to provide that much better of a shot opportunity. Um, I think that's like my, my, my big piece of encouragement would be, if you've got a bunch of nice spots on your property where you've been hunting, I'd say look back at those places. Take these, you know, over these next couple of weeks and months of the summer, figure out what little thing can I do, what more can I do to make this just a little bit better. And if you do that to every one of your tree stands, it can make a big difference, I think. I agree. There's never you can never say good enough, I would I would say. You always have to be you always have to be it's like chess, right? You always have to be thinking about the next move. Yeah. 
So true. And I think you know, there's there's so many things that can go wrong. And this is something we talk about all the time. For years we've been talking about this. But there's so many different variables outside of our control as deer hunters that if you can add any little one of those back into your favor, you should try. Right? right? Because there's, there's umpteen different things that are outside of our control that probably will go wrong. So you might as well do whatever you can to move a couple pieces on your side. So. Yeah. And, and the thing about it that I really like is here's something that I have has kind of opened my eyes in the past four or five years. And that is don't just think about a typical bedding area or a typical travel corridor or, you know, oh, that uh, that house is too close. I'll never hunt anywhere close to that house because the deer are, are you know, they'll get spooked by the house. The deer are used to that house. I have a tree. I have a couple of tree stands or I have one particular tree stand where every morning I would watch the lady come and fill her coffee pot up with water. I could see into her kitchen window <laughs> and, uh, and mature deer were coming by, you know, coming by that. I got trail camera pictures of Mark Kenyon coming down that pinch point next to the house. So, <laughs> Keep your eyes open and don't just, you know, it, it, there's times where you got to think outside the box and be like, okay, this isn't working. I need to, I need to do something completely different. Yeah. I think there's so many examples of that in that type of scenario, like an, a somewhat urban scenario yep. or, you know, when you're relatively close to houses or neighborhoods or stuff like that, we really need to have a whole episode about that and bring uh, someone who's got a lot of experience with that kind of thing to talk about it because I think that type of hunting is becoming more and more common. You know, I think there's a lot more bow hunting happening closer to neighborhoods, especially as you know, development continue, continues to spread out into rural areas. Um, there's a lot of people hunting that way, and you can kill great deer and have a lot of success in those types of areas, partly because of what you just said, because a lot of these deer become conditioned to some level of human you know, uh, exposure. If you can figure out how to take advantage of that, you can uh, you can put yourself in a good position. It's funny. I uh, the first deer I ever killed was in a urban situation. My parents had three and a half acres. I think I probably told this story before, but my parents had three and a half acres behind our house in a neighborhood in Michigan, and so that's where I started bow hunting. And I was hunting in a little pop up ground blind at the bottom of this hill behind the house. And our neighbors or some neighbors from down the way were walking their dog through this valley. Walked right past me. I got all mad, got on my blind, kind of yelled at him, like, you're on our property, blah, blah. You spooked all the deer away, blah, blah. And I was frustrated. And then, like, 25 minutes later, here comes this buck. You know, these people just walked their dog right through this little three-acre patch. I figured that was it. And lo and behold, here he comes because those deer were used to people walking around and regular human stuff. So there's definitely ways to take advantage of that. I, uh, I don't know, man. Interesting stuff. Whoa. That's right. What else do you got going on? Anything else coming up for you? Any other projects? Anything else on your mind? You know, I'm not going to talk to you for two months, Dan. So I know. Well, you're going to talk to me. We're still going to do the Wired <laughs> to Hunt podcast, right? I'm just kidding. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, of course, I will be, I'm, I'll be living with you, Mark. Right, 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 right. Sorry. <laughs> I forgot. Um, I don't know, man. I just, I'm, as always, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, checked, I checked one trail camera this or yesterday, got some velvet bucks, you know, with that, uh, eight inch of main, eight inches of main beam starting to see the, uh, the growth of the, uh, brow tines right now. And, 
I'm really looking forward to um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the trail cam the story that trail camera tells me. I'm also looking at a piece of public ground um, that is one of those. It probably won't be something that I hunt a lot, but it's going to be something where, you know, a majority I feel of public land hunters, they access the property from the road to their stand location. And there, where I, where I live, there's a big piece of public ground that has a creek that's or a, a river that separates the two. And I'm going to maybe try to do a canoe move on one of these public grant uh, lands oh, nice. hunts and access this public ground from the river to a tree stand location. Just, and basically it's going to be something to do to relieve pressure from other hunting properties. Right. Which so is it, it's a really good idea. Yeah. I'm not really concerned about if I'm going to kill anything. It's just something to, I'll be hunting, but I'm going to be laying off my other, uh, my other properties in the Yeah. And try some new things and see how they work. That's right. That's right. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that I, um, two weeks ago, I guess now I was finishing up a, a magazine article I was working on in which I had to interview a whole bunch of different super serious, like DIY hunters. And, um, we didn't talk about this, did we? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I, I'm like, I feel like I'm getting old. I can never remember what I talked about. I feel like I, I'm having deja vu. But <laughs> how, how old are you? 28. Yeah, you're old, bud. I'm over the hill. Yeah. What you gonna? <laughs> you're gonna die at 56. The way I'm living, I might. <laughs> um, what are you addicted to drugs? <laughs> addicted to deer. Oh, okay. Addicted to deer. Um, but yeah, so I interviewed all these guys who are super, super serious DIY hunters who are doing like crazy stuff, like just going above and beyond the average guy. And most of them doing it, you know, all of them actually doing it to stay on a, on a great budget. So most of them are hunting public land and they're, you know, having to, you know, travel really far distances to get to good land and camping out of the back of their trucks or camping behind farmers' houses. And almost all of them were finding creative ways to access ground other people couldn't. So whether it be, hiking seven miles in and just being willing to hike that far or lots of guys with boats. One guy would take his little, would put his little power boat into a river, take that down up to 10 miles down a river to access, to access good parts, of public land. Another guy would get these little canoes. I don't, I can't remember what they're called, but they're super lightweight canoes that you can, one person can carry in. So they're not very strong, but they're very light. And he would canoe rivers, canoe across ponds, canoe across lakes, Another guy had this little inflatable Zodiac boat he took with him everywhere he goes um, that he would bring, take like a little 10 horsepower motor with him and then this Zodiac boat which would pack up into like a duffel bag and everywhere he goes he takes it with him and then again uses that to access these spots and I think it was just one of the biggest things that I took away from all these interviews was that especially when you're trying to get it done in heavily pressured places or on public land you have to get creative you have to be willing to go above and beyond the normal everyday, okay, I'm going to park my truck and walk 200 yards to the tree and sit there and have fun. Um, you know, if you really want to get one of these more mature deer in these tougher areas, it's going to take some out-of-the-box thinking. Um, and it, it got me kind of, like, re-excited about trying some new things myself. Like, I'm, I'm more intrigued with trying to hunt more public land now than I have been in a while. Um, you know, I've, I've had some great success on some private land, some leased land. Um, I'm kind of interested in trying to 
you know, maybe next year Hunt or in the future. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> no, try to do the exact opposite and and really dive into some of these different public land spots. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it'll be a huge challenge. I'm sure I'm going to kill fewer deer and, and have more struggles. But, you know, there's something to be said about the journey, you know, you know, having some serious obstacles and learning some different things and, and see if I can't figure something out. So that's something I've been kind of intrigued with. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm geeked. I'm getting pumped up about it. I, uh, every year though, I feel like, you know, what's the new angle? What's the new, whether it be on a current place I'm far, I'm hunting or a new farm I'm hunting, you know, I'm always trying to tweak it, find a new way to go about things or try a new idea or go to a new place. I tend to get bored with doing the same thing over and over again. I can't. Right. Some I know a lot of people like to you know get their spot, have their go-to tree stands, and then just do the same thing year after year, and it works for them, and that's fine. But I'm just like finding it with my own you know my own set of interests and lack of patience or something that I kind of like going into new situations, learning new properties or stuff like that. So I don't know. I'm, I'm probably gonna be doing more of that kind of stuff this year, or next year, and stuff like that. So I don't know. I've been thinking about all this kind of stuff. So as a hunter, I am torn. Right. So I got, I've, I always, you know, I talk about, um, you know, going after mature deer, you know, I talk about, you know, that, that four-year-old, that, that four-year-old that makes my hit list, you know, not necessarily antler type, you know, antler size, but, you know, finding a target buck, uh, and killing him. And then on the other side of me, I got that, Hey man, hunting is just a blessing and, um, you should be happy to hunt and you should be happy to harvest whatever comes by your tree stand and, and, and that kind of thing. So I have this internal struggle where every year I have this, this conversation with myself about, okay, what are you going to kill this year? If something comes by you and it doesn't meet your, your quote unquote standard, um, are you going to shoot it? I mean, do you want to, uh, you want to fill the freezer? Do you want to kill a buck? Do you want to kill a mature buck? Do you want to kill a target buck? And it's, I got this every year at the beginning of the season. I talk, do I need to change my standards? Because, um, the past couple of years I I've, yeah, I've had encounters and I've, I've, I've missed deer. I, haven't had to hunt as much as possible. You know, all these, all these different things have, you know, they come into play when it comes to harvesting a mature animal. But, uh, I always have this conversation with myself about changing my, you know, maybe you should drop down to a three-year-old. Maybe you should, you know, just shoot the first thing, the first buck that comes by your stand. But every time I do that, there's something inside me that pulls me off that and says, wait for a four-year-old, wait for a mature buck, wait for, so I don't know if it's one of those things where I need to just talk myself out of it, pull the trigger on something different and see how I feel afterwards. Or if I just need to stick to my guns and continue to chase what I've, what I preach. I don't know. Huh? Interesting. Um, I definitely have had similar thoughts too. I guess, you know, my one thought on that um, would be maybe for people other than you. I I, th- I think in a lot of cases, and I don't even know, you're, you didn't ask my advice, so I guess I'm giving unsolicited advice. No, yeah, <laughs> go for it. I'm just, I'm just spitting, spitballing because, you know, 
it's for someone who, for someone who like myself, I write articles, you know, I, we have this blog. I, I give my opinion or in some, sometimes advice of what the listeners should do or shouldn't do. And uh, at some point, you know, it's one of those things where I feel I should be successful at, you know, what I've been preaching and what I've been practicing. And, uh, um, you know, this year, uh, I missed that or this past year, I missed that booner or that big buck. Um, uh, I couldn't get a buck to stop. Uh, and then those were my really only two encounters with what I would consider shooters this year. Uh, well, another one, but he busted me, but, uh, cause he caught, caught my scent. But other than that, you know, the, the past couple years have been a struggle as far, you know, since 2012, I think was the last year I shot a buck. So uh, a mature buck and I've had encounters and I just haven't capitalized, you know, on, on getting those to the ground. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm spitballing here. I'm, I'm, I'm talking what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can totally relate. I mean, I know what you're saying. I would say my typical recommendation to someone would be, you know, just do what feels right. You know, if you feel right. like shooting any buck would get you really happy and fired up and you would feel fulfilled with that hunt and that hunting season, then you should shoot it. Um, so, you know, in your type of situation, you know, if you don't think you would feel fulfilled by killing that buck or whatever it is, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about that. But on the other hand, I know what you're saying too about, you know, you haven't killed a buck in a while and you, you've got all these questions about it. You know, do I need to be, should I be lowering my standards so I can start killing some more bucks? And then to your point, you know, you know, you sharing your experiences and stuff does put some additional pressure on you, or at least it has on me, I felt, um, the only thing I would I would offer, I guess, is that there is something to be said, and this could be like in a, for a person in your shoes or even anyone just getting into hunting, maybe on the opposite side of things. You know, there's something to be said about that experience of actually successfully completing a hunt from beginning to end that makes you a better hunter every time. Yep. So when you actually do have a buck come in, you decide to shoot it, you successfully execute that whole set of steps from deciding to shoot to drawing back to putting a shot where it needs to go to finding that deer that set of experiences happens so few times for the guy or girl that passes on every deer for five six seven eight nine years that you tend to lose a little bit of that experience of a hunt that makes you a better hunter so that would be the one thing i guess i would offer is that right. there might be something you might be able to learn something or you might be able to improve a little bit by going through that more often, not, not, not to say that, you know, you should not have standards or anything like that, but I guess that's one additional thought to throw in the pot to think about, I guess. Right. Um, especially, yeah. I mean, you know, if there's a buck that, especially I think if you, at least for me, like if I'm in a situation where I've tried to diagnose a hunting situation, a property, and I have this plan or this idea and the deer do what I thought they were going to do and it works out and I have an opportunity at a maybe a a teeter-totter buck um you know one of those I don't know I don't know you know that's one of the situations where you should feel pretty or I would feel pretty fulfilled and pretty um content knowing that I was able to actually put this plan together from a to b and see it all the way to the end because that happens so rarely even the very best deer hunters when you you know so rarely does it actually come together that i don't think it's a bad thing to occasionally reward yourself um 
but you know, it, gosh, it's it's such a it's such a different thing for every person, and what makes you happy. And I mean, in the end, that's what it got, has to come down to is if you if you feel good about it, if it was you know the right thing for you. Right, and the the thing about it is, I made those standards for myself at a time in my life where I was single. I was hunting like, you know, up to forty to fifty days a year. I could do those things. Now, time in the tree stand has changed, and I I'm debating on uh, like my standards need to change as well. So, and it's not, and it's not, it's crazy because I'm a huge fan of not making it about the rack uh, or necessarily even the maturity level because I find just – like this year I shot two does and I found just as much enjoyment killing those two does that I did uh, you know, killing previous bucks. But let's be honest. There's – I guess it depends on where you hunt. But for me, hunting does is easy. I can go to – just about any field edge and wait the first couple weeks of, uh, uh, the season and, uh, kill, you know, I got some, I got some, uh, fish in a barrel type spots for does, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I always, doe hunting always seems so easy until I decide to, to just be doe hunting. <laughs> and then somehow they always become really crafty or I become really stupid or something. Cause it always seems like, okay, I'm going to get my buck and then I get my buck and then it's okay. Now I'm doe hunting. And then something always goes wrong. Um, but taking one quick step back to what you were saying there, if you're thinking about, you know, making that adjustment based on, you know, your changing circumstances, which is a very fair consideration, I would just encourage you to not feel bad about that. Like if, if, if you feel like maybe that would be something that would, you know, given everything that's happening, like you shouldn't, I don't personally think you should feel bad at all for shifting from passing on three-year-olds to now shooting three-year-olds because that's still a, a relatively mature deer that's still a smart deer and that's that's a great deer to go after um so you know i would say go for it if, if that feels good to you um and then like i said earlier you might also be able to learn some more things from it from those experiences that could then help you to maybe maybe if you do it for a year, you're like wow that was fun and a couple of things happened that i'm glad i saw happen and now next year i'm gonna go back to shooting targeting four-year-olds but who knows maybe there's some kind of experience you could have this year by targeting a three-year-old that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise i don't know it all you know another nice thing about now (laughs) i want to be careful what i say here because like you like i think there's a lot of benefits to passing on younger deer and and waiting till they're older Um, and i'd encourage people to consider that but at the same time there's also something nice about having a target rich environment you know where there's more deer that you would be interested in killing it makes the hunt more exciting um when you know that you know this buck could be potentially the one um i tell you trail cameras i think that has a lot to do with it you got these trail camera pictures of these giants who are hitting scrapes nocturnally or you know they're on one side of the farm or another side of the farm or you got them in velvet and you're you always got these these hitless deer in the back of your back of your mind um you know, and that, that's not for that's not everybody because I know a lot of guys out there listening hunt public ground in heavy pressured states where the hunting is not like where I hunt. So, and I'm just speaking up, you know, making this about me right now, which I, I probably shouldn't, but um, I think trail cameras can throw a guy for a loop sometimes, oh, yeah. and and make it so this you know this 
great buck that walks by doesn't make the cut because they're thinking about something else. Very true. Very true. And then many times, nine times out of ten, you know, that buck you could be obsessing over, you know, he could have been a one-time visitor or he might be almost completely nocturnal or, you know. His annual pattern is somewhere else during the hunting season. Right, right. That's a very good point. It's tough. It's tough to make those decisions. Yeah. Yep. I kind of wish, like, my wife would make some of these decisions for me, like uh, (laughs) what towels our bathroom needs or uh, what our bedspread should look like, you know, or or what pictures need to hang on the wall. (laughs) So what about this? I don't know if this is what you actually want to do, (laughs) but it would be kind of curious. I'd be curious to see what other people think about this type of thing. Like, would they... um, I'd be I'd be interested to hear if people think you should, you know, given the circumstances you just laid out, would they say stick to four-year-olds or would they say, eh, go for a three-year-old this year maybe? I don't know. I'd be kind of curious to see what other people thought about that. How about um, this? How about this? On the Facebook page that mention, mentions this, um, I know a lot of people comment on, on this, but I want every listener to go to the Wired to Hunt Facebook page and comment on the – post that mentions this actual podcast that you're listening to and your thoughts on just about everything that we've talked about today. Let's get a giant feed of people and opinions rolling on this. And uh, that's that's one thing I really like to do after a podcast is go list, read the comments, listen to what people, others have to say. So, Yeah, I, I think it'd be particularly, particularly interesting on this topic especially would be I like that idea. Go go head up the Facebook page. Leave a leave your thoughts there, and maybe uh, give Dan some ideas for how to how how to move forward on this one. I don't know. Yeah, I I, I can already see it now. Uh, hey Dan, why don't you stop bitching because you hunt in <laughs> Iowa? <laughs> I typically hide those comments, not so you don't feel bad, Dan. But <laughs> right, right. oh man, well there was like a bunch of other things I thought we could talk about today. But we are kind of coming up on time for me. Um, part two. So we're going to have to have another episode like this where we just kind of see where the conversation takes us and, and talk about random things. So I think uh, we should shut it down. And a heads up, we are not going to have an episode next week because I'm going to be on the road heading out west. So, Ooh. yeah, sorry, man. But uh, we'll give you a nice little break from this podcast at least. Yeah, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks, and we've got some great guests coming up in June, and continue this conversation, and lots of good stuff. So with that said, we'll wrap things up with a few quick reminders. First, make sure to check out the 100% Wild Podcast. That's our new show in collaboration with Drury Outdoors. We have a new episode coming out very soon with Jim Tommy. It is an awesome episode, so make sure to check out 100% Wild on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever it is that you like to subscribe to your podcast. Please check that out. Also, we need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, Thank you all for joining us. Hope you enjoyed this kind of casual deer hunting chat that Dan and I just had. 
And uh, like we mentioned, we're going to be gone next week, but we will be back soon. So until then, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.